We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We're not too far away from being done. I, uh, if, if I hold to the schedule that I have over the summer, we don't have any interruptions and I'm called out of town or anything like that, then we will finish the Gospel of Mark a week before school starts. Um, I'm kicking around the idea of combining a couple of messages to maybe get us through a little bit quicker because we, we've been in Mark for a long time. But it's been good. It's been good. Um, and, but now we're in the last three chapters, Mark 14, 15, and 16, and we are literally covering the last few days of Jesus' life here. Um, in fact, what we're reading tonight is just a couple of days before he goes to the cross. Um, it's interesting to me, this same span of time, the Gospel of John, half of the Gospel of John are the last few days of Jesus' life. Um, Mark spreads it out more. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse number 1. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within, himself and within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And the Lord said, Let her alone. I trouble ye her. She hath wrought a good work on me, for ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do, do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. We've just finished the Olivet Discourse and the corresponding parables in Matthew's account, and now we return to the narrative of Jesus' life as Mark records it. Jesus is a mere matter of days from the cross, and he returns to a familiar and a friendly location that's less than two miles away from where he's going to die. And that area, of course, is called Bethany. If my geography is correct, that's on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives, about just under two miles away. If we were to sum up what happens in the home of Simon the leper in one word, the one word that would encapsulate everything we want to cover tonight, it would be this one word, worship. Worship. We know from John chapter 12 that the woman of verse 3 is Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus, and Martha. We don't know who Simon the leper is. Some have said that Simon is the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. There's absolutely nothing to support that conclusion. It's reasonable to conclude that Simon was one of many people that Jesus healed, and this meal is a token of gratitude. So whoever he is is kind of immaterial. Um, I've heard some people argue that this is not the same woman as Mary of Bethany. I see I don't see any reason not to conclude that. I don't see John 12 as being a separate occasion. 
Now, certainly when the woman comes in and wipes Jesus' feet with her tears, that is a separate occasion. This, I think, is the same thing. In this story, Mary displays worship in a form. It's as pure as that of which a flawed human being is capable. Now, we all have limitations because we're human, but I believe there's never been a more pure expression of worship than what we see here. It's, it's the kind of worship that I want to display. It's one that produces awe and that produces wonder. And that's, that's the title of the message tonight. A worship worthy of wonder. A worship worthy of wonder. So, Father, would you help us tonight to get exactly what we need from Mary's example? Would you speak to us in an unusual way? Do something unusual in our midst. Help, me, help us as we pray. Oh, Lord, may this be a precious time of, of incense that's offered up to you. And may we see wonderful things happen because of it. Help us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A worship that is worthy of wonder. This is what I want to be in my own life. I want to be a worshipful Christian. And if I'm going to be a worshipful Christian and I'm going to follow Mary's example, first of all, this is going to be a worship that's unreserved. It is unreserved. Look at verse number three. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she break the box. She break the box. Look at verse number eight. She has done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Spikenard was extremely expensive. Extremely It could only be found in a region in India, and it says that it could have been sold for 300 pence. That is probably a low estimate. But 300 pence, in verse number 5 it says that, um, was basically the yearly wage of an average laborer. To give you some context, I looked this up today. The average yearly wage in the United States today, nationwide, is $60,575. That's the average wage in this nation. So what, what Mary is, is, is giving here is something that is worth what we would understand today to be about $60,000. Now, is God asking us to write a check for $60,000 tonight? I don't think so. Most of us wouldn't have it to give. And those of you that do, no. Um, the point here is this. Mary is holding nothing back. Her worship is unreserved. It's been said, and the more I hear it, the more I agree with it. God is not nearly so interested in what you give as he is in what you keep. Because what you keep is really saying where you are spiritually. For instance, if somebody who's a billionaire, if Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk walk in here and they write a check for $1,000, can I be candid with you? Ooh. They lose millions on a daily basis and gain that back 
tenfold on a daily basis. Elon Musk bought Twitter. That was not a good financial decision by most standards, but he had it to burn. You think of the guy Steve Ballmer that bought the L.A. Clippers, spent a billion dollars for the Clippers, the Lakers maybe, but the Clippers. It'll be a long time for he makes that back. A long time. Why'd he do it? As a hobby. Now, I have hobbies, but they don't cost a billion dollars. So if he wrote a check for $1,000, that wouldn't be that big a deal. But I'd say the vast majority of us in here, if we wrote a check for $1,000, that'd be a pretty big deal, wouldn't it? Because what we're saying is, Lord, I'm holding nothing back. This is a sacrifice for me, and I'm willing for you to have it. By the way, this isn't just about money either. I hope you understand that. Our giving money is a small part of our giving and the attitude of our giving. I've known people, they'll write checks their whole Christian lives, but they won't lift their hand to do anything to help anybody. Can I say God's not pleased with that either? God's not pleased with that either. God's not nearly as interested in what you give as what you keep. How do I know that? Go back a couple of pages. We're in Mark 14. Go to Mark 12. Mark 12, verse 41. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. What is Jesus saying? That woman's gift was greater because of what she kept. She kept nothing. Now, does that mean that we're meant to give 100% every week? No. But we should make it clear to God any way that we can, Lord, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. So a worship worthy of wonder is being all in. It's keeping nothing back from God. It's a worship that is unreserved. Number two, it's a worship that is unadulterated. Unadulterated. Look at verse 3. We're back in Mark 14. Verse 3. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. If you dig into this thing, the the substance in question was actually called nard. Spikenard sounds better, doesn't it? But nard. Hey, Zach, what are you wearing tonight? Is that nard? No. No. It was actually called nard. The spike spoke of its purity. Spikenard was nard that was completely pure. It was unadulterated. And if we're going to have a worship that's worthy of wonder, we've got to be careful not to allow our worship to be contaminated with impurities. And it can happen easier than you think. What, what kind of impurities? Let me just give you three. How about this? If you worship with impure motives, maybe for attention or something else, Go back to Mark 12 again. Mark 12, verse 38. 
And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses and for a pretense, for a show, make long prayers. What is this? This is worship that's got an impure motive. They want to be seen. He says elsewhere, they have their reward. If that's all you're after is to be seen, then you have your reward. Impure motives, seeking attention. How about this? How about if your worship is, contains the impurity of the flesh? Worship that energizes the flesh instead of pointing to the Savior. We would be talking about anything that takes the gaze off of Jesus and refocuses on self. Self, And this can happen in two ways. One, obviously, if it's sensual, if it's something that, that is sensual, if it's something that is immodest in how it's done, if it's something that draws the attention to the body, that would not be appropriate and it would not be worship. I've seen many videos of, of worship services in which somebody falls out on the floor and immediately somebody is there to drape a cloth over them so they don't expose themselves. Can I just tell you this? The Holy Spirit's never going to lead anybody to do that. We don't have to have people at the ready to cover up for what the Holy Spirit's doing. We just don't. We just don't. So obviously, that which is sensual, and I think all of us would agree with that, but let me give one that, that, that may touch some people a little bit differently tonight, and hear me out before you tune me out, okay? How about that which is intemperate? Now, what do I mean by intemperate? Galatians 5, we have the fruits of the Spirit, and the last one is temperance, which is self-control, and there are a lot of groups within our within our stripe of christianity that you go to their meetings and it gets out of control there's a there's a video that floats around that i look up every once in a while when i need to chuckle i probably shouldn't chuckle but they're singing a song about the rapture and the place just goes up and about that time, this dude just goes running down the aisle, up on the platform, and he dives into a full baptistry. I just don't know if God was in that. That may not be the worst thing you can do in a church service, but I don't know if it's the best either. Because from that point on, where was the focus? On that wet joker... And by the way, if he brought a spare change of clothes, it meant he meant to do it. Let all things be done decently and in order. I'm not against services getting emotional. And I know what people mean when they say, I just got the cane, help it. But I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit never, ever leads you to lose control. Because that would go against the fruit. So if I say, Amen! I decided to. If I raise my hands, it's because I did it. I wanted to. But, oh, just let the Spirit 
take. Now, I'm all for letting the Spirit take control, but when it takes us into some kind of a weird trance place in which we would look at it later and say, man, whew, what was I into? I just don't think God's in that. A camp meeting that I attended in my younger days that uh, I'm not sure if it still goes on or not. I'm not against camp meetings, by the way. I'm not against getting excited in the Lord. I hope you know that. But this old boy took off on laps. And he's running laps around the auditorium, just running laps. And he just misjudged it. And, and, and about where that window is right there, there was an open door that would go down a hallway to the Sunday school classrooms, things like that. And he just misjudged it. And he ran into the side of that doorway and busted his head wide open. Now, one of two things is true. Either the Holy Ghost has a sense of humor and ran him into that doorway, or maybe, just maybe, he got a little bit out of control. Now, again, I know that there are times that we can get overcome. There are times I just cry and I can't stop if I wanted to. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about putting on a show. My worship needs to be temperate. Unadulterated by impure motives, unadulterated by the flesh. How about this? Unadulterated by unsound doctrine. Your worship needs to line up with the Bible or it's not worship. If worship or what we claim to be worship goes contrary to Scripture, it's not worship. In fact, the entire book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to a group of people that are misusing spiritual gifts in the matter of their worship. Hey, Corinth, you're not doing it right. There's there's two things there, the flesh and unsound doctrine. Evidently, these are going to be sticky points for a lot of people because what did Jesus say in John chapter 4? But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit, not flesh, And in truth, not unsound doctrine. Spirit and in truth. So a worship worthy of wonder is unreserved, and a worship worthy of wonder is uncontaminated with that which is not pleasing to God. It's unadulterated. Then number three, a worship worthy of wonder is unrepealable. Verse three. We're back in Mark 14. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she break the box. <coughs> she break the box. A lot of these alabaster boxes or vials or bowls or, you know, um, such as you see up there, box is kind of a general term for a container, didn't have to be broken. They had a lid. But why'd she, why'd she break it? No turning back. Because when you break it, it's all coming out, isn't it? See? You know, when I've been worshiping, sometimes in my worship I make decisions for Christ. And can I tell you, I don't have any problem making decisions for Christ. 
I don't have any problem giving things to Jesus. I've never had a problem giving things to Jesus. You know what my problem is? Leaving them with Jesus. How many times have we gone to the altar? How many times have we gone to our knees, maybe at our bedside, and we've said, Lord, I just need you to take this. I'll just I'll give it to you, Lord. It's all yours. And then by and by, what do we do? We take it back. I've done it many times. Mary eliminated that possibility. She broke the container. For her, there was no turning back. There was no reconsideration. I'll tell you a great example of this kind of Christianity, this kind of worship. How many of you have heard of the group called the Moravians? Anybody? All right, the Moravians were a group of Christians, and they were really, really missions-minded. And there was a certain group of them that wanted to reach the people of the West Indies, and the West Indies at that time was big in the slave trade. And it's unclear whether or not they actually had to go through with it, but several of them went into the West Indies fully prepared to sell themselves into slavery to have access to slaves and their masters. When you're willing to sell yourself into slavery to get the gospel to somebody, I'm going to tell you something, that's unrepeatable kind of worship, isn't it? Let's be honest, many of us, our worship has been less than unrepealable. As we worship, we have to do so having eliminated the distractions and desires that beckon us back to the place of halted worship. There might be some relationships in our lives that keep us from full, unrepealable worship, and we might have to cut those off. There may be some pastimes, there may be some distractions in our life that, if we're honest, you know what, this keeps me from unrepealable worship. It's time for me to let it go. It's time for me to break that box. Unrepealable worship. The number four. A worship worthy of wonder is one that is unmitigated. One mitigated. I mean, unqualified and absolute, unmitigated. We're still in verse 3. There's a lot going on in verse 3. Being in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. Now, if you look at John's account in John chapter 3, chapter 12 rather, verse 3, he says that she poured it on his feet. There's no contradiction here. Remember, the Gospels don't contradict one another, they complement one another. So what do we get when we put them together? She poured it on his head and his feet. And one would think that as it poured over his head, it made its way down to his feet. There's been great messages and even songs written about whoever got Jesus' robe no doubt smelled that spikenard. Got a whiff of the fragrance that was still on it. What does her gesture mean? This pouring on the head and the feet, what is she saying? She's saying, I'm worshiping you and my worship is unmitigated. First of all, on your head. What's she saying when she pours it on her head? Well, what, what usually is happening when somebody's anointed on their head? 
In Bible times, it meant a king. What's she saying? I surrender my power and recognize you as my king. And not only that, in pouring this on your head, I want to think like you think, Jesus. And if I'm worshiping like I ought to, I'm going to more and more think like Jesus thinks. Is that possible? Paul told the Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Yeah, you can think like Jesus thinks. But not just on his head, but also on his feet. On his head, she's saying, I surrender my power. I recognize you as my king. I want to think how you think. But when she poured it on his feet, she says, I surrender my position. And I humble myself. A better P word maybe would be, I surrender my pride. Can I tell you something? Being around people's feet, it's hard to be prideful when you're around people's feet. But more than that, if you go over to John chapter 12, let's go there real quick. John chapter 12. Verse number three, then took Mary a pound, a, a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her what? Her hair. What does 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen tell us that a woman's hair is? Her glory. What's she doing? She's surrendering her glory. It's interesting. Every time we see Mary of Bethany, three times we see her in Scripture. All three times, where is she? She's at the feet of Jesus. Would to God somebody could say of me, I can't tell you how many times I've walked in on the preacher and he's been at the feet of Jesus. Can I remind you, real worship doesn't send us high. Real worship gets us low. And in, in, in just like anointing his head, I want to think how you think. Anointing his feet, she's saying, my feet will follow your feet wherever they go. A wondrous worship surrenders its power and pride to think and follow Jesus. Worship worthy of wonder is unreserved. It's unadulterated. It's uh, unrepealable. It's unmitigated. You know what else? It's unflappable. It's unflappable. What do I mean by unflappable? You can't get under its skin. Look at verse 4. We're out of verse 3 now. And now we're doing 4 through 7. So we're making some progress here. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. 
For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good, but me ye have not always. By the way, this is not saying that we should not have concern for the poor and help the poor. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I always come first. And he does. Her expression of worship caused quite a stir. I would imagine the first thing, you know, in John it says that the, uh, the, the fragrance filled the room. You ever broken a bottle of perfume or cologne? And what is meant to smell nice is just kind of overwhelming. I did it not too long ago. Can't bust the cologne that's not my favorite. No, I always bust my favorite cologne. And good night. Just <coughs> that's how it is with this. She busts this box and the whole place, the odor just permeates the place. And uh, there's no shortage of negative commentary. But did she stop? Hey, I like, I'll take them amens anywhere I can get them. I don't mean to embarrass you, but can I stop here for a second? That's a precious sound to me. That's the sound of life. That's the sound of a future. When you never hear kids in a church service, you got a problem. I love it. God prepared me for that kind of thing. It doesn't bother me a bit. My first ministry when I surrendered to preach was preaching at a really bad nursing home. And let me tell you something. You can preach at that nursing home, you can preach anywhere. Because they interrupted me all the time. I'll never forget that dear lady in the back. Do I have to sit here and listen to you all day? I said, no, ma'am, you don't. You can go back to your room anytime you want. She said, all right. She never left. She just wanted to know she could. (laughs) See, even now, unflappable. Can can we view this from two angles? She was unflappable because of her character. Her character. It's been said that character is what it takes to stop you. Well, what was going to stop her from her worship? The answer was nothing and nobody. What stops you from your worship? If you feel within you that you ought to say amen. If you feel within you that you ought to raise your hands. If you feel within you that you ought to be crying. What stops you? Are you worried about other people looking at you? Can I tell you something? Every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, all of y'all look at me. Except the ones that aren't. For whatever reason. Even her. Don't stop me. What stops you? You know what stops some people's worship? Guilt. How can I say amen? I know how I've been. I know what kind of person I've been this week. I know what kind of Christian I am. How can I say amen? I'll just be a hypocrite. No. It's okay for sinners to worship. Can I tell you something? It's only sinners that worship. Nobody's in it perfect, are you? How about this? How about peer pressure? Oh, I dare not say amen, sister such and such. I dare not say hallelujah, brother such and such. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. And you know what else? It just wasn't her character. She did it right in the face of her critics. And there's always critics. 
Teddy Roosevelt had a great speech about that, and I'm not going to give you the whole thing. But he basically says it's not the critic that counts. Critics don't know a thing about the struggle. It's the people that have been in the middle of it. Read it sometime. It's really good. Their criticism, first of all, was carnal. They elevated social concerns over spiritual. Uh, look at verse number um, verse number five, where it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and been given to the poor. So what are they saying? There was a way for her to use this that was better than giving it to Jesus. You could have given it to the poor. We're going to find out that the person who suggested that had absolutely no concern for the poor. And you know what I found over the years? That people that scream the loudest for a social gospel and the people that scream the loudest for these causes that, that, that focus on um, the plight of the common man, more often than not, they don't really care about the common man. Politicians do it every November, don't they? Criticism was carnal. You know what else? It was contagious. If you look at John's account in John chapter 4, you see that Judas speaks. In Mark 14, it says, some had indignation within themselves. Matthew 26 verse 8 says, the disciples spoke out. So what do we learn from putting those three together? It started with Judas, it spread to others, and before long, all of the disciples were saying the same thing. What do we take from that? Be mighty careful of what influences your life. Because you hang around somebody with a complaining spirit long enough, guess what? You're going to have a complaining spirit. You hang around somebody that can't find joy in anything at all long enough, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find you don't enjoy it all. Don't be thermometers that measure the climate around you. Be thermostats that change it. See? Uh, worship worthy of wonder is unflappable in the face of resistance. It's unreserved, it's unadulterated, it's unrepealable, it's unmitigated, it's unflappable. You know what else? It's undistracted. Oh, man. All right, forget that, unforgettable. I left one out. It's undistracted. It's undistracted. Verse number eight. She has done what she could. She's come beforehand to anoint my body. To the burying. Don't miss that phrase. She did what she could. Your worship has nothing to do with what other people can or can't do. Your worship has nothing to do with what other people have done to you. Your worship has nothing to do with, with what is expected conventionally of society. Your worship has everything to do with whether or not you have done what you could for the glory of God. That's it. Would to God I could drive this in to my thick skull. My worship and my service to God has nothing to do with what big church down the road does or preacher on TV does or anything else. Have I done what I could? Now, that's the question you got to ask yourself. Have I? There's the great story about President Carter. He was, of course, in the Naval Academy. And before he graduated from the Naval Academy, he met with his superior. And the superior asked him one question, did you do your best? That's the only question he asked him, did you do your best? 
And he said, I was ashamed to say no, I didn't. How about you? How about me? Did we just do our best? She did. Her focus was ever on Jesus, not on the people complaining, not on Lazarus, not on Martha. Her focus was on Jesus, and her focus was on his death at Calvary. And do you know how I know? Because it seems to be that this is the only person, Mary of Bethany, to really understand what Jesus was about to do. Why do I think that? Mark chapter 9. Go back to Mark chapter 9, verse 31. And you see this over and over again in the Gospels. For Jesus taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying. They didn't get it. And right up to the end, we just covered it in the sermons that he was preaching, the Olivet Discourse. They still didn't get it. But Mary did. Why? Because when we refuse to be distracted and we keep our focus on Jesus, we get insight that other people don't have. It's true. It's called discernment. How do I know that she understood when nobody else did? If you go to the cross, you see Mary, Jesus' mother. You see Mary, the wife of Cleopas. You see Salome, and you see Mary Magdalene. Who do you not see? Mary of Bethany. Well, maybe she'll be with the group that go to the tomb. No, that was Mary Magdalene, Salome, and Mary, the mother of James. She wasn't in that group either. Why? She did all that beforehand. They went to anoint his body. She already had. Why? Because she knew she didn't have to go to him. He'd come back to her. And she seems to be the only one that knew that. She knew how things would turn out. Wondrous worship is undistracted by lesser things. It's unreserved. It's unadulterated. It's unrepealable. It's unmitigated. It's unflappable. It's undistracted. You know what else? It's unforgettable. Verse 9. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. How do we know that's true? What are we doing tonight? Think about it. He doesn't say it quite this way, but she made the Bible. She was included in the Bible. Not too many people can say that. And we're proving what Jesus said. As long as the gospel is preached, this expression of worship is going to be remembered. And can I tell you something? Real worship lives on past the worshiper. How many of us right now could name a name? I'm not saying for you to, but we could name a name of somebody who's now gone to heaven, but you remember the kind of worshiper they were, and it still impacts you. 
I got plenty of names I could call out. Because real worship sticks around. It's unforgettable. That's why the psalmist said, Surely goodness and mercy shall what? Follow me. It's what I leave behind all the days of my life. And a worship worthy of wonder proves to be unforgettable to all influenced by it. Okay, so what? What do we take from this? I want to sum it up with three messages that Mary very clearly says to Jesus when she does what she does. And these are the three messages that we need to be able to say to Jesus honestly if we're going to have this kind of worship. You ready? Number one, Lord, I love you immensely. What is she saying? Jesus, I love you immensely. What do we need to be able to say? Lord Jesus, I love you immensely. You know what else she says? Lord, I am listening intently. Why, why did she get what nobody else got? Because she listened. How many times do we miss something God has for us because we're just not listening? When you worship, worship with an expectation that God's going to speak to you. Because he wants to. He wants to. Lord, I love you immensely. Lord, I am listening intently. And Lord, I am looking eminently. I don't need to go to his tomb. He's going to come to me. And you know what? He's coming to me too. He's coming to you. Could happen any moment. Maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, maybe soon. I'd have to say likely soon. Jesus is coming again. So may we all strive to express this to him by offering a sacrifice of ourselves that's unreserved, unadulterated, unrepealable, unmitigated, unflappable, undistracted, and thus unforgettable. Because these are the traits, the characteristics of a worship that is worthy of wonder. Next week, Judas sets up the betrayal. Lord's Supper takes place. He's arrested. Sad times all the way around. Something that's interesting, this is for free. Judas is the one that initially called the breaking of the box a waste. A waste. The Greek word translated waste, you know, it's, it's translated another way elsewhere. And the word, does anybody know the word? Perdition. And do you know of whom it speaks? Judas. He complained about the waste of spikenard. And in the process, he completely wasted his life. It's wasted. What a sad thing. What a sad thing.